If you teach yoga to children, or if you're passionate about making yoga's more subtle practices accessible to a wider variety of people, you'll love today's conversation with Rina Deshpande, author of Yoga Nidra Lullaby. During our conversation, Rina unpacks the practice of Yoga Nidra from a cultural, practical, and neuroscientific perspective. Rina is an educator, a researcher, and an author illustrator. She's completed her ERYT 500 certification and earned a master's in neuroscience and education from Harvard, where she designed a yoga and mindfulness research curriculum. Rina also has a monthly yoga journal magazine column on the culture and science of yoga and has been published in Self, The Huffington Post, Headspace, Talkspace, Sonima.com, and Learning in the Brain. If you like this conversation with Rena, you may also want to listen to episode 116, which is about cultural appropriation and honoring yoga's roots. That's also with Rena, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Let's jump right in. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Rena, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. I'd love to hear a bit about how yoga influenced your childhood, because you talk a lot about your background and the cultural aspects of yoga. And so I imagine that there were aspects of yoga that were woven into your childhood that at the time probably just seemed normal, but in retrospect, you recognize as being different and unique. I'd say so. Yeah. Or even just seeing the value in it, you know, as a child, you want to assimilate and maybe you don't always appreciate all the things. As I grow up or grew up, and I feel like we're always growing up, I realize how much it can help me to live a balanced life, even through the difficult times. My mom used to do something similar to yoga nidra. She didn't name it as such, but it was just inherent in what she did. And she would lead me to sleep with yoga nidra practice that was very subtle. And then Ever since then, I just remembered that practice and then I had the chance to research it and I write about it. So this book has been a long time in the making. Tell me about the practice that your mom did with you. You know, I think it probably would resemble what maybe a lot of parents inherently do or caregivers. She really named just from head to toe, even just the tension that you might have and letting it go. So she used to call it eyes go to sleep and... <laughs> So she would start with the eyes. We carry a lot of tension, those of us that happen to be sighted, and we use a lot of our attention through the eyes. And so to even wind down from the day is a great place to start to just ask your actual body parts, you're asking them to relax. And I think that foundationally as a child hearing my mom asking or wishing each part of my body good night, rather than just saying good night. So nose, mouth, chest, you know, stomach all the way down. And then at the end, she would really help me to release all of it. She would tell me all of the tension, just release. So these words that now I think people seek in yoga nidra from all ages, like I was raised with that. And then as I learned more about yoga nidra, that, yeah, it all kind of came together. <laughs> and so that practice of like 
a progressive wind down is so wise and we forget winding in and winding out takes a few steps and it takes a little time. It is going to take me a few steps to get in and to get out instead of wanting to do the jump and jump either way so that we can find the rest that we need. The way that our culture is set up now where we're so device dependent makes these practices even more useful and important because you know, you're talking about the eyes. Well, not only are we using our eyes so much, but we're using them like in this really intensely focused close up way where there used to be more time spent with a diffused vision, right? Where we're just like walking out in the countryside and there's lots of information coming in, but it's all from far away and we're not like so hyper-focused on it. Yes, totally. I mean, and what you're saying about that close-up experience, it's multi-device, right? I think I saw a meme recently that was like, watching Netflix without a smartphone in my hand is now the new reading. It's a big deal to be able to sit and do one thing. And, you know, there are moments where you'll catch yourself and myself, I include myself in this, right? There's a laptop, there's an iPad, there's a smartphone. There, you know, it's just the number of devices in close proximity is really it's really challenging and it's really immersing our nervous systems in a lot of energy that, I mean, understandably for those that might be feeling anxiety inexplicably, right? Like, of course, these things are going to add to that multiple forms of input and output in multiple places all at once. Yeah, before we started recording, I was sharing a bit about my daughter, my older daughter, and some of the challenges she's going through. And I really think that this relationship to devices is a big reason, a big factor in these challenges. And I know she's not the only one. I mean, I hear all around me the anxiety, the depression that our young people are going through. And this is the generation so far that has grown up most connected to these multiple devices, this pattern that you were just referencing. It reminds me actually of a, I was doing a focus group during my like study and research experience while I was in a grad program at Harvard. And the kids that I worked with were high schoolers. I've been an educator now, it's almost two decades. So I work with kids all the time, but to be in a focus group in particular with them about devices was just really illuminating for me because I had about 10 kids sitting around the table with another researcher and they were saying either if they didn't have a device, they were really eager to get one, but at the same time to hear them say, but I kind of don't want one. <laughs> and there was maybe one or two in the group, the rest all had one and they were never leaving it. So I was saying, but what about when you're taking a shower, right? Like you're not going to have it. And they're like, it's there. It's on the countertop. And if it dings, I'm asking them, like, you're responding to it. So just realizing that it's under their pillows, on their pillows at night, it's in the bathroom. It's, I mean, it's literally following kids who are now known as digital natives, right? Like, but it's you to even hear them say it's too much, but I don't think I have a choice. That's just the way it is. Yeah. It's really challenging for them. I'm always a learner, so I can speak personally, and I believe we all ideally would be learners always, right? And even yoga, right? Is Yoga is that practice of unlearning and learning. <laughs> so it's so beautifully organized and so ancient, which is amazing, but still can be helpful for when kids navigate a world that does demand device use. And yet knowing that in their insides, they're feeling a bit overwhelmed. It doesn't mean to say wipe out your device completely, right? But 
what yoga teaches us is balance. And so to recognize when I'm breathing more rapidly, when my eyes have been fixated on my phone for too long, like there are ways that they can actually use this practice. One of the most wonderful things about yoga in general is that it's going to be transferable for always. And it just has been the wisdom in it is tremendous, but it's also practical across the ages. You talk about your study, your identity as a lifelong learner. And so I am really curious about your journey from child who is absorbing some of the lessons from yoga, but also maybe a bit resistant to it, to researcher and author. I'm also curious if you have a living teacher who guides you in yoga nidra. You also have some academic angles on this. So yeah, tell me how those come together. I think these are all really like maybe related to like thinking of this process, for example, of like even creating this book that comes out of the research that's involved in it because I'm an illustrator, right? Like as well. However, naming myself as such was not something I formalized. And the research involved in something like that was all over the place. So there's one aspect to it where it's all over the place, looking into it, trial by error, frustration, get in there, do it again, and having a vision for it, not matching up just yet, right? Like, so there's this part of it that's messy and having peace with that. Research, I've been doing a bit more now for a longer part of my life. And so I have a system. So if it's scientific research or educational ed psych research, I know the resources I want to call on or the experts that I also value or fellow colleagues. And I also carry a lot of experience in that already. It just basically feels like I've already created a toolbox with that. And with the yoga practices, like I, I honestly feel like I, I look to my parents a lot. They are truly an embodiment. I'm not trying to say that they are ever self-proclaimed as, you know, yogis. And in fact, even just the use of the words, you know, like if I say the word yogi, it's for them, it was so funny because they were like, like if I'm referring to myself as one, they're like, all right, but like their understanding being born and raised in India, the meaning of that word is not as common as we use it in the Western world, right? We kind of assign it to anyone who's on a mat. And I do some exploration on the balance between both, but I look to them because they carry so much wisdom. It's just part of who they are. So I feel like even just living among them and around them, which I've had the, you know, the privilege to do, especially during this pandemic, I, I learn a lot from my family in that regard. And we do follow particular gurus or we have a, an upadhyaya, which is another form of teacher, and she's incredibly knowledgeable. I call on her from my Indian community. So, and I read a lot too. So, books from people from all backgrounds, Indian included. <laughs> so, you said your family has a guru that you follow. Is that something that you're willing to share who that is or what lineage that's from? Sure. So JK Yoga. So there's Swami Mukundananda. Then we, you know, Chinmayananda Mission. We follow like there, there's multiple. And similarly, I wouldn't share the name of the woman who is a guru to our, I would call her a guru to all of our family. She would not. She's just a wealth of knowledge. But again, it's this carefulness and precision of how we're labeling things. And like, I think in that regard with the Indian community that I've just gratefully grown up with, I have a lot of people to call on. I'm not only learning the practices, but I'm also learning the precision, which makes me feel more connected to it. Just making sure we're honoring how this actually is meant to be shared and spoken. And, 
you know, rather than than just kind of flippantly picking up a buzzword and sharing it as well. Examining the aspects that could easily be missed if you're not immersed in it, but seems very obvious to those who are immersed in it, I think is what I'm hearing you say. That yes. there's like intricacies. And if you just look at the surface, then you're going to miss those intricacies. And then even somebody growing up sort of bridging cultures that you've had to be more conscious about looking below the surface. Yes. And I, you know, I used to feel like as a child, as an adolescent, I used to feel like I'm trying to be one or the other. And now, you know, as we were talking about in the beginning, it's such a privilege to have both and be able to share from both and to explore through the lens of both being Indian and American. My family's from India. I was born in America. And also to even face the challenges still, right? Like to accept that there's challenges that come with that as well. But then I think that's where I feel really fortunate because I've been able to bring them together. I don't think that should be the aim for everyone in life, like, and not even for me, but I think in particular, when I'm thinking about why I put this book together as well, it brings my work as an educator of 20 years for pre-K to 12 teachers and kids. It brings together yoga. It brings together the yoga as a cultural practice. It brings together yoga science that I have done. So it brings together all of these things and then art, which I care so much about and just inherently I think I've gotten from my dad's side. It's just, it's really cool when it all comes together. Not that was necessarily the aim, but I, when I looked at it, I realized, look at that. <laughs> it wasn't planned necessarily that way, but it did. It happened. It's your unique configuration expressed into a book form. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I want to dive a little bit more into the neuroscience. You talk about the neuroscience of rest and how yoga nidra fits in that. So tell me a bit more about what impact rest and the lack of it has on the brain. And are there different types of rest? Do neuroscientists, do we categorize rest in different ways? And if so, where does yoga nidra fit in? What type of rest is it? I know that was a lot of questions, so just jump in wherever. Sure. <laughs> I'll keep it more in general terms, I would say. But basically, yes, there are different forms of rest, right? You might have heard of the different waves. And they typically were told that yoga nidra helps us move into a hypnagogic state. And that's basically a place between wake and rest. And one thing to keep in mind, right, is that the brain, we have what's called a default mode network. And that's when the brain is going to be, you know, about as quiet as we want it to be. But that doesn't mean the brain is is just doing nothing, right? <laughs> that's not the aim because that means that we're no longer living. So we have some activity in the brain and what we know and the monkey mind, which you might've heard of in yoga practices, if you are somebody who's familiar with Eastern tradition, Buddhism, like we talk about the monkey mind and the mind is going to, we keep feeding it things. <laughs> it's going to keep grasping for more. So basically you're going to keep activating your brain and it will keep looking and searching for things. There's a lot of connection with that and the sensations of anxiety, meaning we're searching for things. There's something next, right? Like, or I'm thinking of that and it's hard to quiet it down. And so yoga nidra and yoga nidra lullaby, right? This book that gives you a bit of intro to where you are. So what it does is it, the practice itself allows you, and this is why I love yoga practices and how wise they are. 
it allows you to notice where you are, what's happening through the senses. It's not saying quiet it down, shut it down, get to sleep, right? Or get to rest. It's saying quiet where you are by noticing first and just allowing it to be what it is. So if you have cars buzzing around you and you have your phone dinging next to you, you're noticing that. You're saying, this is where it is. This is where I am. And then you start to move to the physical body. So yoga is acknowledging the environment is connected with your body or part of the body. Another part of your body is your physical body. We have breathing body, right? Like we have different body names in yoga and Sanskrit. And so what it's asking you to do is to bring your attention bit by bit from outside in. And in that way, when we are talking about that default mode network, we're helping it to power down in a productive way, in a careful way, so that when the brain is quiet, what you're actually getting is actual rest. You're actually getting that repair, which is when you look at a baby, for example, what are they doing, right? They're eating, they're sleeping, they're getting some love, and they're going to the bathroom. Like that meaning... (laughs) Like you're doing those few things and they're growing. They're physically growing. They're touching things, like they're learning things. And it's without those elements, they can't productively grow the way, right? Like grow up. And so similarly for us, we might forget that sleep is so foundational. The repair is actually productive. So if we can get that mindset in Western society and even in Eastern society, because there's just been like, I see a lot of Western influence on Eastern traditions kind of falling away in, in India when I visit and I'm like seeing people trying to like remember, sim- no matter who you are, it's helpful to remember repair, rest is actually productive, I think is the key there. So I hope that helps. Yeah, that's beautiful. Similar to talking about different types of rest, are there different categories or types of yoga nidra, or is this kind of an umbrella term? Yes, the short answer, there is. And yoga nidra is not necessarily something you'll find in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, right? Like in these foundational texts and remembering that even before the foundational texts, these are orally shared tradition and philosophy and principle, spiritual principles. But yes, there are various forms because even yoga nidra itself is an evolution as ancient as it is, right? It comes from different philosophies. There's different forms of philosophy. Some get like, so you're going to find different traditions have different forms of doing it. I would say the foundation is the same and even scholars, right? It's very difficult to pinpoint where it evolved and when, but I would say that the common thread is, and even in research, it's referred to as progressive body relaxation. But what I would say about that with progressive body relaxation and a limitation in calling it that is that Yoga Nidra, as I mentioned, is not just only about the physical body, right? It's about tuning into environment as a form of body, right? So it's a total mindset difference. And so I think people might take it in different directions. So, you know, I'd even be happy to give you a short practice now of something that's a variant that even I have created and evolved like to share as like a short break versus you need to lie down, you need to get into the hypnagogic state. It's just a simple short practice that's been influenced by yoga nidra, for example, but it's not like the full relaxation. So there are different formats of it and each can provide relief, in my opinion, in different ways. (laughs) Great. So you want to guide us through a version of yoga nidra that's designed to not be quite as deep and to be 
a bit more of a pocket of rest. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. Why not? So I, this will be something that I would recommend if, you know, if you're doing something like driving or needing to be, you know, alert, I wouldn't recommend doing this at that moment, but you could do something like this for a break and you can do it wherever you are. You can be seated standing, or you can lie down if you want to. So I happen to be seated and I'm just going to, again, notice where I am. So take a moment and I'm going to name the senses for you. And I want you to just choose one of the senses as you hear it, that's standing out to you in your own environment where you are. So when I name the senses, just notice which sense is most salient to you. So sight, sound, taste, smell, touch. And once you've noticed which one stands out to you, you could even say out loud what stands out in that sense? So for example, I might say, I hear the sound of a lawnmower in the distance, because that's true for me. You might say, I see a couch in front of me. So now choose the sense and you might say it out loud for yourself. Just take a moment. I feel the sensation of breath against my nostrils. Great. So just by noticing that, right? And you can do that with all the senses. For this brief experience, you pick one and it helps ground you in the place that you are. And now we'll do two more things. We're going to move inward. So I want you to notice your breath and you've already started there. Just happened to for you. So breathing in, feel your chest expand. You're connecting a little with the body. Breathing out, feel your shoulders relax. Take two more deep breaths in and out if it's comfortable for you. And if not, just breathe normally. And this last section here that we'll do is just simple where I'm going to cue different parts of the body from top to bottom. You can keep your eyes closed if you want to. You can open them totally up to you. But I want you to bring your attention to your head and ask your head to relax, which you could do quietly or out loud. And then bring your attention to your eyes and ask them to relax, either aloud or quietly. And then bring your attention to your torso and arms, hands, ask them all to relax. And then that lowest section, so hips, buttocks, down to the legs and feet, just ask that whole area to relax. And then ask your whole body now, and maybe even say something nice to your body. <laughs> just ask your body to relax, maybe even thank the body. And just take a few moments here in quiet just to notice how you feel. And then you can start to rub the hands together gently. This helps to wake up a little bit. And <laughs> so just a calming practice. You can gently open eyes if they were closed. And maybe move the shoulders up and down a little bit just to re-energize. 
Yeah, move head side to side, <laughs> naturally happens. Anything that wakes you up. And then you can resume with what you're doing. And so that just took us maybe a handful of minutes. It's not something that requires any equipment or any special position you have to take, right? So it's something that can really help during the day. It's always available. You know, what strikes me through that practice, which was lovely, by the way, is how as humans, we use language to break things apart <laughs> so that we can understand them, but that reality is much more enmeshed. The definitions aren't so clear. Yoga Nidra is very related to meditation. And I find that useful to help me understand how I could use Yoga Nidra rather than say, okay, it has to be this way. It's like, yeah, it's on a spectrum that includes meditation too. And let me incorporate some of these tools in a way that is appropriate for this moment. I love that. And I think that openness to it, right, is so helpful. So it can be in different contexts. And, you know, you might even be a yoga teacher who's implementing, you know, yoga nidra at the end of your practice, right? So you can allow it to be a part of something. It can stand alone. It's really up to your discretion. And I think especially the naming out loud piece, we don't always do that maybe as yoga teachers, right? And when we're leading people through the practice and it's an option for you to offer. I do that a lot with kids. I'm asking questions, for example, in this picture book, Yoga Nidra Lullaby, because kids, as they're reading, they're also going to be progressively relaxing. And to be able to name something out loud we might think that's actually not calming us down, right? But if we're not saying something out loud, we might be going in the mind. <laughs> and it actually can help bring the mind's attention to the sounds of our own voice. So you're actually, what you're doing is you're training your mind to focus on something. Similarly with mantra. So that was an inspiration for me. Mantra is repetition, usually of something divine, usually in Hindu tradition or in Indian culture. Mantra is you say out loud, it might be repetitive. You could theoretically say it in your head, but why we say it out loud? Well, you know, some consider it holy to do that, but some it's also because it's training the mind to not just say it, but hear it. So you're really giving your mind two places to focus on something so that it's less inclined to go run away <laughs> onto something else. So in the book itself, I create questions and my hope is that, you know, if you're an adult reading it with a child or adults reading it for yourself, these questions are something that you can actually ask and talk about, which still lead to progressive relaxation. I love that. I love this idea of more fully absorbing ourselves in whatever the object of our attention is through using different senses at the same time. I think that's really useful. I know we're almost out of time. So if there's anything else that you were hoping to share about Yoga Nidra or that you think would be useful for yoga teachers, this would be a perfect time to do that. I would love to read a first page, if you don't mind, of Yoga Nidra Lullaby. So this is a book I, I authored and illustrated. It's my first book published with a publisher. Thank you, North Atlantic Books and Penguin Random House. And so you can just get a feel of how this relates to Yoga Nidra. So Yoga Nidra means yoga, sleep. There are multiple ways to define Sanskrit, but really it's a way to help rest the body and mind. And so there's vivid colors. I know you could see this, but maybe others who are just listening. So there are vivid colors to tap into senses and also it's allowing kids to tap into their environment. So 
The beginning is, the orange sun begins to sink. Skies are golden. Clouds are pink. What evening colors do you see? And so children can either look at the book and share the colors they see. And I paint as many as possible. And it's hand-painted collage so they can choose from here. There are blues, there are pinks, there are purples, there's yellows and oranges. Or they can look around them and share, right? Like I have a mauve-colored lamp, I might say, you know, pink or something over here. So the idea is to tap into either the book and their environment or choose, you know, one or the other. And it goes on and on toward the end where they can share a good night wish, which makes me very happy as well from a clear place if they're awake for that part. <laughs> but thank you so much. I appreciate that. So, and again, that book is informed by many different practices, Yoga Nidra Lullaby, and it's available wherever books are sold if you want to check that out. <laughs> do you also do trainings for yoga teachers? I provide some continuing education credits and it's usually when I'm doing workshops. It's not something that I'm, I'm currently offering on a website, though I might in future. Um, but I do, yeah, I teach, I teach yoga nidra workshops. I teach culture and yoga workshops. I teach science and yoga workshops frequently in different places. Um, so if you're interested, I, I've collaborated with studios, with universities, with different education organizations. So if you're interested in something like that, it's something that can be arranged and you can contact me at Rena the Poet on Instagram or renathepoet.com. Um, and that's a place to find me. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing this beautiful book and your passion and your culture with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so wonderful to be here again, Madhu, and I hope that we can do something like this again in future. <laughs> Love that. Absolutely.